Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Governor Tom Wolf signed an executive order yesterday raising the minimum wage for state employees under the governor's jurisdiction and contractors who deal with the state from $7.25 to $10.15 per hour. It could be the first step toward a campaign to increase the minimum wage for all workers statewide. The impact of a minimum wage is one of those issues that is often debated. But what makes the governor's move even more controversial is that it comes at a time when the state hasn't had a budget for more than eight months. Joining us on today's program is Dr. Mark Price, a labor economist with the Keystone Research Center. Mark Price, welcome to the program. Uh, Thank you, Scott. It's great to be here. Also joining us is Alex Halper, who is Director of Government Affairs with the Pennsylvania Chamber of Business and Industry. Alex Hopper, welcome to the show. Thank you, Scott. Well, give us a call if you have a question or a comment uh, about the minimum wage issue. We're going to talk a little bit about the governor's action yesterday, but for the most part, we'll be discussing minimum wage itself and uh, whether it should be raised. 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, we'll start with uh, the governor's executive order yesterday. Alex Halper, um, your thoughts on the, uh, the governor raising the minimum wage for the workers under his jurisdiction and with with uh, workers, with contractors who deal with the state? You know, we don't question or doubt the good intentions of Governor Wolf or or anyone advocating uh, to increase the minimum wage. Uh, However, we know based on history, what we're hearing from uh, employers all over Pennsylvania with with their experience, uh, as well as any number of of studies and reports from independent uh, sources over the years that have shown when you require employers to uh, increase what are typically entry-level wages, you have some folks who benefit, but you also have some folks that have uh, some of those negative employment impacts, whether it's uh, hours are reduced or what we've seen from uh, recent studies of, uh, of jobs that are actually lost. So the, the governor yesterday, as you noted, uh, signed an executive order for state employees and for contractors. And, you know, I think there were probably employers around Pennsylvania reading that this morning thinking, um, you know, isn't that nice sign a paper and all these individuals will get a raise, Um, you know, employers thinking, wouldn't it be nice if I kind of had a magic wand and I could sign a paper and uh, increase labor costs for entry-level workers by 40% or, you know, 500% of some proposals aim to do. So, you know, I I think it's a, it's, it's misguided policy. We we have to see what the implications will be for the state and how it's going to be paid for. But in terms of broader public policy, uh, it's just not a step in the right direction. And we're going to talk about all those things you mentioned, too. But you said uh, employers across the state. But in this case, when you're talking about employees under the governor's jurisdiction, he is the employer. Well, that's right. And and he has customers paying um, in the form of taxes, uh, really, whether they whether they want to pay it or not, which is a little bit different from how uh, from how it works in 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 the regular economy, where if you're an employer and you've just been told that for your entry level workers, uh, their their uh, pay has to go up 40 percent and all of the costs associated with that rate, whether it's payroll taxes or unemployment compensation taxes that are tied to that rate, uh, you know, you're told that that your rates just your labor costs just went up 40 percent. Um, 
um, you know, money doesn't grow on trees, except, I guess, in state government when sometimes it does. But for most employers, that's not how it works. And they're going to have to figure out how to deal with that. And, and something you should mention that, yeah, I said the governor is the employer when we're talking about those 450 employees that would be impacted. But come this summer, contractors who deal with the state uh, would have to pay their workers at least at 10 15 an hour. All right, Mark, uh, Mark Price, let me go back to you. Uh, your overall thoughts on the governor's action yesterday. Sure. <clears throat> you know, I think um, we're certainly very pleased with the governor's um, proposal. I think most importantly, I mean, as Alex talked about, you know, we're, we're really talking about, you know, a few hundred workers that are going to benefit from this uh, for the state. And we don't know how quite how many workers will be impacted among the contractors. But again, it's, it's likely to be quite small. So the total budgetary impact here is, you know, somewhere around $4.1 million, which is a little less than one-tenth of one percent of the state budget. You know, every dollar counts, but nonetheless, it's we're talking about a pretty modest proposal. Where it's, I think, very valuable is because it shines, I think, a very bright light on the General Assembly, which now has had before it for more than two years bills to raise the minimum wage to uh, any number of, of levels, 875, 1010, some uh, around 12. And it's taken no action. We have none of the labor committees have, have moved bills to the floor for a vote. And the reality is we think if a bill would go to the floor, it would likely pass. And the reason it would is because the vast majority of likely voters, including the majority of likely Republican voters, support a minimum wage increase. Now, we can debate what the levels are, but the reality is that most people agree, as in 29 other states across the country, that, that wages should rise um, for a broad group of workers, but certainly uh, for low-wage workers in particular. I'm not going to talk a lot about the politics of this today, because uh, even though the two of you follow state government closely, I mean, uh, Alex, your title is Government Affairs with uh, Pennsylvania uh, the Chamber of Business and Industry, but I'm not going to talk about the, politi of the politics of this a whole lot, but I do want to ask, and Mark, let me ask you, uh, as I said in the introduction, this is controversial because, number one, the governor did this with an executive order just because the reason you just suggested that the legislature ha has not dealt with it. So there are a lot of people looking at this and saying, OK, you know, we're not happy with what, how Washington is going. President Obama has been criticized for signing executive orders to get action done when the Congress won't, won't act. Now Governor Wolf is doing the same thing. So th that is one thing. And the other thing that I mentioned, that the state doesn't have a budget, and yet we're bringing millions of dollars you know, in expenditures to the state with this move. No, I think it's absolutely correct, and people would like to see government function. And, and really what we have seen nationally, I think, over the last few years is a lot of discord. And, and that discord often translates into efforts to shut down the government, really. It's been difficult to get things done because you know people have taken extreme positions. And so I think um, what the governor's proposal is doing, although it, you know, as you said, it, it's, it's ruffling some feathers in the General Assembly, I think it's ruffling them for the right reasons, um, precisely because they haven't taken action. If they're upset with what the governor has done, they should bring a bill to the floor and, and have a broader debate about raising the minimum wage. Mm -hmm. uh, same question, Alex. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is a, a very common strategy we've seen over the years. Uh, and again, not to question the, the intentions here, but uh, it's, it's an election season. So we start talking about those issues that sort of poll well, well including uh, increasing the minimum wage. And, uh, you know, so I think if I were advising advocates here, I would say, let's at least take some kind of action to show that uh, we are, we are, uh, we're, 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 
doing this for our own employees. And uh, although I, I would know, and it's interesting that uh, the governor at his, at his press conference yesterday noted that uh, that there are some exemptions. I think human service and human I think service, the nonprofit yeah. sector are are exempted from this That's increase. That's the contractors. That's yeah. right, for, for the contractors. Right. So, you know, I guess it's a little bit encouraging to, um, to see that there is at least a recognition that this does not always work as much as, uh, as, as well as you hoped it would, that there are simply uh, employers, whether it's nonprofits or many of the employers we talk to who don't have the capacity to expand their labor costs so dramatically, um, you know, I, so it's sort of easy to do when you're talking about nonprofits, but we think that recognition has to extend to the to the broader employer base in in Pennsylvania. Those contractors, uh, how will they be impacted? I'm sure that there are some of your members that uh, that may be impacted by this, but how will those contractors be impacted? We have to see how that's going to to play out. Uh, we, we need to get a better understanding of of uh, to whom this is going to apply. Uh, we've already heard some concerns that that uh, you know state contracts are, I think, right now awarded. Uh, you know, there, there, there's a fairly good balance of smaller employers who can um, who can qualify and who win bids for state contracts. And you know, some of these smaller employers that may have very thin profit margins. If their entry-level wages are required to increase, uh, you know, substantially, they may not have the capacity to bid for those anymore. So, you know, as much as as I, you know, I, I firmly believe that uh, we need uh, the best bids possible being uh, submitted to the state, uh, just for the purpose of fiscal responsibility. If we're telling the employers in Pennsylvania that smaller businesses with uh, with, with smaller profit margins, um, you don't really. Uh, you're not really going to be able to bid anymore because you can't afford it. And we need to go to just large employers. That's not fair to to all employers. So, uh, you know, we see all the time the 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 rule of unintended consequences and what start as real as policies with good proposals when they play out in the real world, it doesn't always work out as well as you hope. And I think this this uh, this action is a perfect example. Mark, what about that? I mean, even if there is a perception, now I I know you you come. You come prepared with a lot of statistics about what a minimum wage hike does. And so, Alex, it's one of the reasons this issue is so we, we keep talking about it all the time is because both sides have uh, some, some numbers to, to back it up. But what about what he just said? Even if that perception exists amongst those smaller would-be contractors and they don't bid, you're locking some smaller businesses out. Um, this is free market capitalism, which we all love very much. And uh, if you don't, the bid, economist says. <laughs> the economist says. Uh, and if you don't bid, that's your problem. Um, you know, well, if, that's kind of harsh, isn't it? it? Well, free markets are harsh. Um, we we expect employers to come and and seek out and chase business uh, for anything, whether it's in the public sector or in the private sector, and they certainly do. And so I think you're hearing a lot of very strange speculation about um, you know, oh, people aren't going to bid anymore. Oh, boohoo! It's very difficult for us to do business. The reality Was is, that you actually like <laughs> no. Look, I am uh, I am so excited to hear Mark tout the benefits of free market uh, capitalism, and I'm. I'm 
I hope someone's recording the show so I can keep it for posterity. We're recording. But it, but, yeah. but, but look, if you're if you're changing the if you're changing the rules of the game and you're telling uh, bidders on state contracts, your labor costs are now increased by forty percent, and that has a, dis- a disproportionate impact. We know on smaller employers. Uh, I don't know if I view that as free market uh, capitalism. I, I think I view that as as a um, as a very serious unintended consequence for employers, many of whom, uh, you know, may be struggling. We know a lot of smaller businesses in particular are still kind of making their way out of uh, the difficult recession. A state contract might be keeping their head above water. And now we're saying, well, let's sign a, let's sign a paper. And now you're in really tough shape. Mark, I just saw you kind of look at the ceiling when uh, Alex said that. <laughs> See, I, 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 folks, I can tell this behind the scenes. They both told me we like each other, and uh, so this will be fun sitting down and having this conversation. And we enjoy the civility of it. But absolutely, Mark, absolutely. Go ahead. I, uh, there was there are flies in this room. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I would not doubt that. Yeah, but it, go ahead. I, you know, as a taxpayer, one of the things I expect from my public sector is that it provide good jobs and good opportunity, um, that it'd be a good employer. And I think uh, a majority of, of taxpayers would, would likewise agree. It doesn't make a lot of sense for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to um, be party to transactions that leave people earning very little and, and leave them doing things like having to go to the Central Pennsylvania Food Bank to, to get access to, to food because they can't make their, their bills. Um, they can't make ends meet. So I think this is what the governor said. And I think he said it from a perspective, you know, as a capitalist, which he is one. Um, and he talked about his own experience running his business when he was making this proposal and that his values, his view about how he should work and how his company should work was that wages would be would be fair would be high. And and that worked well for him. And it, and he also had at his press conference, he had Lancaster Food Company. He had other small employers who do commit to both providing good products, good services, making profit, but also making sure that workers earn enough to get by. And I think that's a, that's, that's a good spirit. I think that's what taxpayers appreciate. So I, I think that's really what this issue is about. And it also, again, points us back to the need to talk about raising wages um, in the broader economy for all private sector. And that's what we'll talk about next. Alex, what were you going to say? Well, you know, I I, I think certainly Governor Wolf uh, was uh, ran a, a a very successful national corporation. Uh, so the notion that that uh, the governor can look at his experience as the CEO of a corporation and say, well, I didn't have to pay any of my workers below a certain amount, so every other employer in Pennsylvania, well, why can't they just operate the same way? I think if you ask you know the average uh, restaurant owner, I think it's you know it's important to note that. Over half of those earning the minimum wage in Pennsylvania work in food and drink establishments, you know, and, and these are these are businesses in particular whose profit margins I think are between one and three percent annually on on average. So the notion that it worked for his large national corporation and therefore every other business in Pennsylvania, well, gosh, why can't they just operate under the same set of circumstances? Uh, you know, it, it it clearly sort of doesn't doesn't match up. We're getting a lot of phone calls. I'm going to get to those in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. 
We're discussing raising the minimum wage after Governor Wolf's executive order yesterday, raising the minimum wage for employees under his jurisdiction and contractors dealing with the state. Our guest today, Alex Halper, Director of Government Affairs with the Pennsylvania Chamber of Business and Industry, and Dr. Mark Price, a labor economist with the Keystone Research Center. We will get to some phone calls in just a moment. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Before we get to the, the phone, a couple things I want to bring up to both of you. Alex, first of all, something Mark said earlier, and I want to bring up that uh, the state, Pennsylvania, has not raised its minimum wage in almost a decade now. 725 in 2007, still 725 in 2016. If you look at it, even from a business standpoint, that's a long time between raises. I mean... Doesn't it, it sounds as if that doesn't make a whole lot of sense that we go that long without increasing minimum wage. When you when you hear from advocates, including the governor and many other, uh, others, talk about this policy, there, um, what we always hear is, look, if you're working full time and raising a family, you should not have to live in poverty. Right. That's right. The problem is, and the argument really falls apart when you look at the the demographics of who this is actually impacting. For so many years, the the public was sort of presented with this false choice of you either support increasing entry-level wages or you don't want to help people, low-income families. And that's totally not true. The fact is, the majority of individuals earning the minimum wage are, are younger over 80% don't have children. And when you look at the statistics and the state puts out a report every year, you see that a significant portion, over half, you know, live in, uh, live in households uh, whose income is over 50000 I think a, th- a third is over 75000 So I think most of us can agree, and the PA Chamber certainly agrees, that if you're a low-income parent raising a family, we absolutely need smart policies that that help you because you shouldn't live in poverty. The problem is minimum wage is a policy from from the 1930s and the demographics of food impacts has evolved so significantly over the decades and over the years that it just doesn't it doesn't match up. We need we need smart targeted policies to help these individuals that don't bring some of the negative employment impacts. I, when I talked about the studies that have shown job loss, and this is, you know, this is the Congressional Budget Office. This is the Independent Fiscal Office. This is not the PA Chamber or some sort of right-wing group. Pennsylvania IFO, just to interrupt for a second, uh, I saw some figures. They said that we would lose 31,000 jobs. That was, yeah, that was, that was the number. And the, the CBO in D.C. looked at it nationally and said between 500,000 up to a million jobs lost. And more importantly, when they look at who, at, at, at whose jobs they are, it's those very same low-income uh, adults that, w- that we all agree need to be helped. So we need to, you know, we spend all this time debating minimum wage and the number and should it be phased in. I think if we spent more time thinking about 21st century solutions to addressing these issues, we would help a lot more people. Um, what what it, about the, go ahead. Yeah, uh, thank you, Scott. So I, Alex is really good at his job. So, um, Thanks, and, 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 and And I also endorse, uh, you know, just as a brief moment of, of agreement, smart policy would be better. And certainly one so, area where the chamber... You can, you can agree on. That's right. So we that agree on. my next question. <laughs> can you agree on? Right, um, you know, and certainly the earned income tax credit is one area where the chamber and Keystone certainly would, would have a broad agreement that that's something, it's a good policy. It's, it's 
it helps encourage people in a labor market. And it's good uh, a good thing going forward. But I, I want to emphasize that you know Alex didn't really answer your question. Um, you know, as you're sort of asking the question, well, what about what's happened to the purchasing power of the minimum wage over time? And I think that's that's an important question to, to focus on. And you know, if you're listening at home, I, I want you to imagine you've got in your hands a, a slinky. So in the left hand, those are the lowest wages um, uh, in in our economy. In the right hand are the highest wages. And now I want you to pull your hands apart. And as you do that, um, right, not only are the ends farther apart, but each of the rings of that slinky are farther apart. That's what's happened to the wage distribution in Pennsylvania uh, in the past 35 years. And a key reason, one of the most important reasons why the bottom of that slinky has pulled away is because wages, because the minimum wage has not been raised to compensate for the rise in in inflation over time. So uh, basically... The minimum wage doesn't go as far. It buys 25% less purchasing power today than it did in 1979. And Alex talking about demographics, um, again, he's very good at his job. You know, he, he uses words like entry level. These are entry level wages. We're talking about people earning between 7.25 and 10.10 an hour. Those aren't just entry level wages. In fact, uh, our own work has shown that you know over the course of a decade, almost 40% of people stay in these jobs. These aren't entry level jobs. These are jobs that people over the age of 40 work for years. And today, they're much more educated than minimum wage workers were in 1979. Basically, the chief problem we face is that the minimum wage has fallen in value. And that's what we're trying to address by raising the minimum wage. And, and that's, I think, an important point not to get lost. And, and Alex, one, one thing, and I promise we will get to the phone calls and just go one phone call after another after this. But one of the points that uh, the governor's office brought up, and I'm, what it touches on what Mark just mentioned, is that you increase the minimum wage that uh, the research has shown that this puts more money in pockets for purchasing power, that those people who will get these uh, raises in minimum wage will spend that money, will put, uh, I think the figure I saw was like uh, 60 million or was it 6 million? Um, you're talking about the... In Pennsylvania. I think it was $6 million back into the economy. Oh, okay. That back into the economy in, in purchasing power. Wages go up by about $1.9 billion um, is, is the total increase in just wages. Yeah, and, and most of that will be spent. Sorry. So yeah. what, what about that? I mean, doesn't that purchasing power that businesses will be able to invest back into their own, their own businesses, maybe hire a few more workers, uh, doesn't that offset? Um, from experience, we've seen we've seen no. And again, the, in 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 the economy, um, money going from one place has to come from has to come from somewhere else. So uh, you know, again, only in only in state government can you make this decision to just increase uh, increase wages without having a plan of sort of how to pay for it. Now the. Estimates we've seen, I think they are wildly over-optimistic. And if you're willing to assume everything positive will come from this action and none of the negative implications that um, we know will happen. So again, when you're, when you're making a, a policy change like this, you have to look at all the employees that, poten- that potentially could be impacted, and all, they're, they're all sort of rolling the dice. Yes, obviously, some of them uh, will see more money in their paychecks. Without a doubt, of course. That's, uh, you know, that, that's a given. Actually, the IFO says a million workers in Pennsylvania would see more wages. In so paychecks. look, but I don't want to be the person to, to tell, uh, you know, to tell a, maybe a high school student or a college student or someone uh, you know, that they're going to see their wages go up 
and then tell someone else who might be that single parent that that really needs it that I'm sorry your hours are, are going to have to be reduced in order to compensate or or you're going to have to lose your job you know we also hear from a lot of employers and these numbers don't always translate in the studies and everything we see but uh, you know a small business might have a plan to open a new location or expand their existing operation and uh, but those numbers are very it's very tricky to make those numbers work to make a move like that and if you're raising your labor costs by 40%, they tell us we have to scrap those plans for now. So those are jobs that never got to exist in the first place. Those are individuals who never got to get their foot in the door in the first place. Yeah, for one thing, and we go to the phone now, but for one thing, for everyone to to, uh, remember, this is not an either-or situation that uh, every business, every employee may be impacted differently Mm -hmm. by this. Let's take uh, some phone calls now. Paula is in Harrisburg. Paula, thanks for being patient. Paula, are you there? I guess she wasn't that patient. Sorry about that, Paul. <laughs> Edgar is in Mount Joy. Edgar, you're on the air. All right. Yep. Thanks for taking my call. I'll try to make this quick. I imagine there's others waiting as well. Um, so I heard that there was mentioned uh, 21st century proposals. So here's kind of a proposal that uh, France started to do. I heard they started to do this about a year and a half ago. I don't know the results of it. But um, rather than having a blanket increase on the minimum wage, what they did was tie the wage of the least paid worker in a company to either it was one of, <clears throat> sorry it was one of the two it was either a percentage of the highest paid executive in the company or a, a percentage of the the total profit made by that company because uh, I know there was a discussion about free market capitalism and um, and I must say that I hate it but the but those on the right have a point that if you kind of increase the minimum wage blanket, there's going to be a ton of small businesses that will suffer. So this sort of proposal helps to alleviate that because if a small convenience store is running very low profits, the highest paid person there is also you know under poverty line. Then then why you shouldn't have to raise the minimum wage of those people in the same way that you should have to raise the minimum wage of someone like McDonald's that are raking in billions of dollars of profit every year. Thank you very much for your call. And, uh, you know, uh, one thing I will say about this debate, and you can, you know, answer or respond to Edgar's suggestion uh, specifically, but something else that, uh, I don't know, it's kind of refreshing is that we're talking about other ways to do this, uh, like phasing, phasing in a minimum wage rather than just going from this to that. But your thoughts, Alex, on uh, what Edgar had to say? Well, Edgar, I appreciate the call, and, and I guess I appreciate both you and, and uh, France. Uh, you know, I'm not sure I necessarily <laughs> agree with the policy, but again, it's encouraging that there are some who are actually recognizing that the policies that were implemented back in the 30s to address these issues of pro- poverty maybe are not as, as relevant or effective in, in the 21st century. You know, it's interesting. When you look at the minimum wage when it, was in, when it was implemented back in the 30s, it was 25 cents an hour, and it was tied to, that was based on uh, a percentage of the average manufacturing wage. And that's because most of these workers, and, and the law only actually applied and this is according to the, the U.S. Department of Labor, well, the law only applied to about 20 percent of, uh, of the workforce was required to adhere to this new minimum wage requirement. And these were generally the breadwinners for the family. These were pr- uh, predominantly older uh, male breadwinners who, uh, as a policy to address poverty. And again, as I said, over the years, as we've seen these demographics evolve and it's more and more younger 
individuals, of uh, people who are not certainly not living in poverty and are not raising families. Some of them are, but 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 clearly a lot of them are not. Um, it's time to it's time to evolve with uh, with the times. Mark, your response to Edgar. Uh, Edgar, thank you for the call. Um, I'm not familiar with. I, I was not aware that that was the French model. I'm not. Also, sure it is. I, I think one of the proposals, as 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 Scott, you were making the point, sort of, is w- this debate about the minimum wage has gotten a lot richer than maybe it was uh, a decade ago, and and certainly the typical view about how you. One of the questions is where you set it. Where do you set the minimum wage? And the current debate is about getting the minimum wage, you know, as Alex is reaching back to the, the 1930s. The current debate is about restoring the purchasing power of the minimum wage to what it was uh, around its peak in 1969. So that's getting us closer to about $10 an hour when you adjust for inflation. But it does also raise a question, like, where should you set it? And Alex sort of, uh, you know, he's talking about the average manufacturing wage. Um, there is a proposal to set the minimum wage in each individual state and sometimes in cities um, uh, to, to basically sort of to be a percentage of the median wage for full-time workers. Again, it comes back to that issue when you think about the slinky. What we're really trying to do is, is decrease the distance between workers. Uh, and that's important to do because that distance implies access to resources, not just your access to resources, but also your kids' access to resources. So I, I think, you know, uh, it's, it's a rich debate, and it's gotten richer as we've begun hearing other states talk about moving to uh, $15 an hour over, uh, you know, several years. So I, I think, you know, um, uh, it's an important debate, and, and we're moving forward. Well, speaking of the debate, Bill in Lancaster wants to uh, bring in some history. Bill, you're on the air. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. Uh, I've been listening to this since the 1960s, this argument, and it's always the same. Oh, my God, the world is coming to an end. Oh, there are people starving. And you know what? It doesn't happen. Back in 1968, the equivalent of today's value was just under $11 for the minimum wage. And the country has done well for the most part since then. And I'm just getting tired of listening to it. These two ought to grow up and come to some compromise that's reasonable. People cannot live on the current minimum wage, but we shouldn't go crazy and raise it out of sorts. $10 an hour comes to $25,000 a year, or uh, about, which is kind of reasonable for the lower end to exist on. All right, Bill, thank you very much for your call. I'd just like to point out, I'd love to grow up to to $10.10 an hour. (laughs) But the point that Bill makes, though, is a a good one in that this debate, not the growing up part, um, (laughs) that this debate has gone on since the beginning of the minimum wage in the 1920s. And, you know, it has come, you know, we hear about it every few years, and as you pointed out, Mark, other states have done this. So, here's the, one of the bottom line questions, and I know you both have your numbers, but what has been the experience in the other states, the cities that have done this? Mark, I'll start with you. Thank you, um, Scott. Uh, well, as Alex has very artfully pointed out, you know, every other state, all 29 of them that have raised the minimum wage, are basically deserts. 
you know, there are no people, no businesses, no opportunity. They're just, they're just, they're just islands of of, of despair. There and, is sarcasm and, here, folks. So you, sometimes it doesn't come over in radio, so I'll point that out. Thank you, Scott. Uh, you know, um, uh, we're talking about you know states that, that have had an experience of raising the minimum wage, and researchers have done a lot of work. It's one of the most active areas of economics research. There are researchers on both sides of the debate, but basically, over time, the 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 um, employment impacts that folks worry the most about have have fallen. They've gotten smaller as our empirical techniques have improved. There's still some economists who argue there are some small negative impacts and the independent fiscal office is arguing 30,000 jobs lost out of, you know, a, a million workers who see their wages rise. But in general the experience has not been uh, one where states are a disadvantage economically. In fact, you know, if you're looking for states that are performing poorly, Pennsylvania lags most of those other 29 states uh, in every term, not just um, overall job growth, but even looking at, uh, you know, job growth among restaurants and, and, and the kind of industries that would be impacted by minimum wage increase. So in general, the experience has not been the negative one that Alex is, is sort of worried very loudly about. You know, after the minimum wage was increased the last time, uh, we put out a, a call to our members. In our, Pennsylvania. In, well, last time it was increased in Pennsylvania. We put out a call to our members, employers all over the state. How is this impacting by you? And we got overwhelming and very serious responses about jobs lost. There was an amusement park out in, uh, out in western Pennsylvania that had to cut 100 jobs. This is not. This is. These are not hypotheticals. These are not economists uh, putting together studies and theories about how this is impacted. When you look at a business and and they have to increase their and again these are often entry level positions. They have to go up by forty percent. Uh, you talk to business owners. It is a very it is a very real impact. I know it would be much more convenient for everybody if this were all uh, you know corporations just swimming in cash, and this was you know this was going to fix the wage disparity and and will uh, will help all these people. It's just not the reality. Bill, you know, Bill talked about finding compromise, and I completely agree. But from our perspective, compromise does not mean coming up with some kind of arbitrary number between the current rate and 1015, which I would note would be the highest rate of any state in the country. I think the compromise has to be, let's recognize the demographics of who's involved. And if we can all agree that low-income workers raising families need some help, let's target some help to those individuals, not spend an entire year, which I know we're going to do, debating numbers about minimum wage. And, the, and at the end of the day, whether it's someone, whether the increase it goes in and people lose their jobs or nothing happens, those same individuals are going to be, are going to be looking for help. Gentlemen, I wish we had more time. We'll, oh, uh, we'll uh, do this again sometime. And uh, it, it is something that the governor, if anything else, the governor has raised the issue again, and uh, we are talking about it, and maybe the legislature will be talking about it as well. But I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Mark Price, a labor economist with the Keystone Research Center, and Alex Halper, Director of Government Affairs with the Pennsylvania Chamber of Business and Industry. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF. If you're home for NPR News and all things regional, I'm Scott Lamar. There's already media speculation about who the leading presidential contenders would name as their running mates if they win their party's nomination. It's rare to find a story that doesn't include the narrative. 
that a potential running mate would come from a battleground state in the presidential election. The idea being that the vice presidential candidate would deliver that state's voters to the ticket. Is that really the case? Our guests today have researched that and have written a book called The VP Advantage, How Running Mates Influence Home State Voting in Presidential Elections. Joining us, Kyle Kopko, who is an assistant professor of political science at Elizabethtown College. Professor Kopko, welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott. Also joining us is uh, co-author Christopher Devine, assistant professor of political science at Mount Vernon Nazarene University. That's in Ohio, right? That's right, Mount Vernon, Ohio. Uh, Thank you very much for being with us today. Again, if you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. That is the number to call. All right, I'm going to kind of go backwards here and ask the ultimate question. Does the choice of a running mate impact the election, the presidential election? Uh, Professor Kopko, I'll start with you. Generally not. It could, under very narrow circumstances. Uh, Based on our research in this book, the presidential candidate matters about three times more than evaluations of the vice presidential candidate, to make a very long story short. There are some very unusual circumstances where the selection of a running mate could matter, but by and large, Presidential candidates shouldn't worry too, too much about who they select as a running mate, uh, at least in terms of electoral strategy. They would be much better served to focus on picking someone who's going to be a good partner in governing, someone who could maybe assume the presidency uh, later on if there were to be a tragedy, something along those lines. Uh, By our estimates, running mates really don't provide an electoral advantage in a battleground state. So all the speculation about maybe picking a John Kasich to carry Ohio or Marco Rubio to carry Florida it's just not going to happen based upon our empirical evidence. Well, Marco Rubio should win his uh, Florida to begin with as a presidential candidate before he's chosen. And I just mm-hmm. throw that as a side. Professor Devine, yeah. so why does this narrative exist? That's a good question. I think it goes back historically that um, you know there was more of an emphasis, uh, especially if you look in the 19th century, on uh, as the convention actually made the selection. Back then, it was not presidential candidates. Um, but one thing that picking someone from a certain state could do uh, under the patronage system that existed before is that uh, you had a better chance of bringing in uh, the fold of people who believe they would benefit from the vice ah. president uh, being there in power. And um, you know that narrative. Um, I, I would also point out back then there was a stronger sense of state identity than there is now. A lot of politics has nationalized since then, um, but yet we never ditched this narrative. Um, in fact, if I could build on what uh, what Kyle was just saying, so um, you know uh, the the effect that the vice presidential candidate has for it to have this effect, you have to think: Would you vote differently? So you go in, maybe it's 2012, and you were going to be a Barack Obama voter. Uh, that's the candidate who you preferred. But then Mitt Romney, instead of selecting Paul Ryan, he selects you know Pat Toomey or something like that. As a Pennsylvanian, are you going to? vote differently based on that. I think a lot of times people make these projections without really thinking about, gee, would I react that way? It's almost like I'm someone who knows a lot about politics, so I'm going to look at how the mass votes, and it's a, it's much simpler uh, for them. You know, we came across some quotes from uh, media analysis. Uh, there was one, might have even been Chuck Todd, I, I forget, it, it, was, it was someone back in, um, in, in uh, 2000 or 2004, was talking about uh, picking John Kerry, so it must have been 2000, Al Gore potentially picking John Kerry as his running mate, and said, uh, you know, gee, that could really help in, in uh, Pennsylvania, actually, because, um, I forget how he phrased it exactly, but something to the effect of, because Kerry is married to the heir Three of the signs. Heinz fortune, right. and, you know, <laughs> that's one place in the book where we let ourselves go a little bit and, and say, 
somewhat sarcastically, you know, would you vote differently because uh, the running mate is married uh, to someone who is the the ex-wife, the widow uh, of of a, a former uh, you know Pennsylvania elected official? Right? Think about it. Would you react mm-hmm. that way? And I think most cases, mo- in most cases, we would vote differently based on characteristics of the presidential candidate. But it takes an awful lot mm-hmm. uh, for it to be well, a characteristic of the vice presidential but, candidate. But you know, we do that even with the presidential candidates. Think about it, Hillary Clinton. We hear so often that uh, Hillary Clinton's parents, uh, her father, was uh, born in Scranton, played Mm -hmm. football at Penn State, and somehow that is supposed to uh, encourage or bring more Pennsylvania voters to Hillary Clinton's side that wouldn't necessarily be there. So it's kind of the same thing, even Mm -hmm. though the vice presidential candidate doesn't have as much impact as what the presidential candidate would. Mm -hmm. would. All right, let's talk a little history here. And you do talk history, a lot of history about your book, in your book, but you also use a lot of formulas, a lot of numbers to kind of uh, prove your your point or show your research. Uh, But one that everyone looks at is 1960. Mm-hmm. John Kennedy, uh, senator from Massachusetts, young, 42 years old, uh, was not that popular in the South. So he decided on Lyndon Johnson, who, as history shows afterwards, that the Kennedys really didn't care for Lyndon Johnson that much uh, That's right. uh, on a personal basis, but uh, that they chose Lyndon Johnson. And there are some people who point to that in 1960 and say Lyndon Johnson delivered Texas for John Kennedy, helped win the election. Is that true? Well, and, and I would even go further. Some people would say the conventional wisdom is that he delivered the South. And mm-hmm. uh, actually, I'll let Chris take the lead on this one. Yeah, it, and I first even point out that even if he had delivered Texas, um, uh, if, if the Kennedy campaign had not won Texas, they still would have won 279 electoral votes. For, for, so for Johnson to have had that effect, he would have had to deliver not just Texas, but also one of the other Southern states. I think there were three of them that had 10 or more electoral votes or some combination of a couple others. So, I mean, it's a heavier lift than it's often uh, portrayed. If I could just read briefly one quote here uh, that we have in the book. John John Kennedy himself, when he announced for president in 1960, he he appeared on Meet the Press, January 2nd, 1960, and he was asked, if you don't win this presidential nomination that he had just announced, which people didn't believe he would, they thought he was angling for the vice presidency, would you run for vice president? And he dismisses it by saying, really, the office of the vice president is not that important, even its place on the ticket. And he he says, uh, this is uh, at the opening of uh, chapter one of the chapters of our book, he said, um, a vice presidential candidate does not contribute electoral votes. People vote for the presidential candidate on both sides. That's what's going to happen in 1960. They presume that the presidential candidate is going to have a normal life expectancy. Cringe. Uh, they don't say, we don't like the presidential candidate, but we'll vote for the vice presidential candidate. We think he had it pretty much right. If, if anything, right. he's a little uh, extreme with that. But the, the ironic thing, and this is actually the pattern we see so much today in, uh, in general with media coverage, is to say... You know, the vice presidential candidate delivered in 1960. That made all the difference. That was huge. But everybody knows that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, and yet they continue to talk about it, in, often in media coverage. In fact, half the time, we, we, we uh, looked at media profiles over the years of, of vice presidential contenders, half the time they mention the home state as a plus or a minus for choosing a certain person. But they'll cite LBJ as, as the historical example. The evidence that we find of this, because really, uh, as far as we've discovered, there's no really specific analysis of, of actual uh, survey response from that year or anything like that. Uh, to our knowledge, this is really the first uh, what we do in the book to figure out 
were voters in Texas or generally through the South more inclined to vote for the uh, the Democratic ticket because of, of Johnson? And there's just no evidence to really indicate that. Um, he was more popular uh, in in the South, um, uh, uh, you know, than... than um, well, actually, let me back that up. Actually, if you look at um, favorable uh, opinions of him uh, across the whole country, actually, oddly enough, this surprised us, but the uh, opinions of LBJ were, were less favorable in Texas than the rest of the South, and they were less favorable in the South than in the North. The person who comes through really strongly is popular uh, you know, across all the country, including the South, is Henry Cabot Lodge, the Republican vice presidential candidate. Um, but it's an incredible pattern when you really look at, at the, the results, uh, and we look at uh, really the um, the key uh, electoral uh, survey uh, that, that that's done in political science, which is the American National Election uh, Study from 1960. Uh, that's our, our main database for that chapter. But we also look at some internal campaign polls uh, in Texas and in Louisiana from that that uh, election year. And across all of those, there's just no pattern of LBJ being more more popular. He was reelected that year to the Senate. It's always about who you run against, though. And, and the person he ran against that time was pretty uh, obscure. And he did win 58 percent of the vote. LBJ did. Um, but other than, than that, when statistically you test the relationship between opinions of him and people's vote choice or whether they volunteer on the campaign or any indicator of, of you know electoral excitement, there is no statistical connection uh, between opinions of LBJ in the South uh, or in Texas and how people acted. Kyle, is there an example where the running mate influenced an election or at least brought the home state? There could have been. Uh, in one of our other chapters, we examine a hypothetical situation. Um, are you going to talk about New Hampshire? Yes. Gore? Yes, we okay. are. So <laughs> really for it to come down to a home state, because of the way the Electoral College works, that state has to be decisive. It has to get you to a majority of votes in the Electoral College. And there are some examples where maybe a, a vice presidential running mate would have delivered their home state, but it doesn't really matter unless if it's that state that puts you up over the top. In our analysis, though, that could have only have happened one time in recent history, and that was the 2000 presidential election because it was so close between George W. Bush and then Vice President Al Gore that if any state had changed from uh, the Bush camp to the Gore campaign, that would have made the difference. And shortly before announcing Joe Lieberman as his running mate, Al Gore's campaign took the unusual step of leaking uh, a list of vice presidential candidates that they were considering. And on that list was Jean Shaheen. Now, some people might remember she actually has some Pennsylvania connections, interestingly enough. Do. Yeah. So she's originally <laughs> from Sealings Grove, uh, went to Shippensburg, and um, later she became uh, governor of New Hampshire. And actually, in the 2000 presidential election, she was running for her third term as governor, and she was elected again in 2000 as governor of New Hampshire. But that was the only state that the Gore campaign failed to carry in New England. So it was four electoral college votes. If they had carried New Hampshire, that would have resulted in 271 electoral college votes for Al Gore, and he would have had an outright majority at that time. Florida would have been totally irrelevant. So what we do is we employ essentially a forecasting model to figure all this out. What would have happened if Gene Shaheen would have been the running mate of Al Gore in 2000? And by our estimates, they would have carried New Hampshire conservatively by at least a point over the Bush-Cheney ticket. And we could have had 
president of the United States, Al Gore, in 2000 instead of George W. Bush. And things would be uh, a lot different. History would be a lot Very different today. The role of the vice president has changed a great deal over the last mm-hmm. 40 years. I mean, there's been some famous quotes as to uh, how little the vice president uh, has done in history. But starting with uh, Jimmy Carter and Walter Mondale, Reagan and Bush uh, especially, uh, even took it to a new level. The vice president has taken on more of a role. And with that, as you suggest in the book, that one of the key factors for the choice of a running mate is whether the president is comfortable with that vice president. But mm-hmm. something, Kyle, you mentioned that's very important, that if we just looked at it, you know, is this person ready to be president? Would they be a good president? Right. So talk about that, how the role of the vice president has changed. Sure. As you mentioned, in, in recent decades, the vice presidency has become much more powerful uh, and in fact, I, I think a lot of historians would even argue that Dick Cheney is perhaps the most powerful vice president in history. Very recent. And it's it's kind of incredible to think about it in those terms. And even Joe Biden has followed in Dick Cheney's uh, footsteps in terms of being much more active in negotiations with members of Congress over policy, uh, helping to select some czars under President Obama's uh, watch. And now you see uh, Joe Biden taking the lead and trying to do this moonshot over cancer research as well. Uh, so he's been very much active in the policy uh, decisions of the Obama administration, just as Cheney had been very active in the policy decisions of the Bush administration, particularly in regard to energy policy. And I think what we'll probably see uh, in the next few presidential administrations are vice presidents continuing in in that path. Uh, They're going to be a partner in governing. Uh, They're not going to be, you know, the person that just checks in on the president's health every every few days to make sure they're doing all right. Uh, (laughs) And that has been the case historically. There have been some vice presidents that that's what their job was, checking right. on their health. Place and they say it. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> they joked about uh, it. Professor Devine, yeah. um, one of the real changes occurred in 1992 with Bill Clinton and Al Gore. Mm-hmm. Uh, surprised a lot of people that uh, Clinton chose uh, Al Gore from a na- Clinton from Arkansas, Gore from Tennessee, neighboring states. Uh, you know, this went against the narrative. Yeah. This went against it, that the geography wasn't a part of it, that, you know, Gore, he didn't choose a running mate that would bring his state along. What changed? Well, yeah, and, and that, um, they got away with it is the, is the big thing. You know, that, that people <laughs> said you can't do that. You have to choose someone who balances the ticket. So Bill Clinton, you know, he's a, a more moderate Southern governor. Um, you know, you would have to pick someone who is, uh, you know, a, a, let's say a more liberal uh, Democrat from somewhere else in the country, surely from the North, right? Um, and he did it, and people said you can't do that, and then they won. Um, you know, in that combined with then George W. Bush in 2000 picking Dick Cheney, who from Wyoming with three electoral votes, exactly, and and, and you know didn't seem to add uh, that kind of uh, spice to the ticket that you're supposed to give. And Karl Rove very famously tried to talk him out of it and said there's no electoral advantage here. And again, they got away with it. And that's the thing where we find ourselves today. I think a lot of people look back, and they've explicitly said this in some of the media coverage that we highlight in, in the book, is to say, you know, VP uh, you know, uh, geography used to matter, but it's been proven in recent years not to matter. Uh, you can look at the Clinton uh, selection. You can look at the Bush selection. Um, they, they did very well, despite not following the usual rules. Uh, so they say that old logic is dead. 
And what we find here is that it's it's not. Um, they, they still go by that logic. We have uh, a minute left, and there's so much more I'd like to talk about. But uh, I have to get into the, our current presidential candidates. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we look at the front runners today, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, who do you think they'll pick? Well, what would they look at? <laughs> 45 seconds. Oh, I, I don't know. I, I, I've heard rumors about Rick Scott in Florida, uh, the governor of Florida, being a potential running mate for, for Donald Trump. Trump if, if he does get the nomination. It looks more and more likely, but we'll see. Uh, maybe uh, one of the Castro brothers, yeah. uh, if Hillary Clinton is the nominee as well. There's been a lot of talk about that, especially in, in that case. Um, you know, is she trying to pick up Texas? And I, I doubt that. But is she trying to pick up Hispanic votes? Probably so. And in fact, we're looking at some other analysis where we looked at: uh, Do you actually win votes within a demographic group by picking someone who belongs to it? See, and, and we're not finding much evidence of that either. See, that was one of the questions I wanted to ask today was about the the, the choice of Sarah Palin and yeah. Geraldine Ferraro in '84 by Walter Mondale. Mm-hmm. But we'll have to let that go for another show. Gentlemen, want to thank you very much for being with us Thank today. you, Scott. Thank you very much, Scott. The, the book is uh, The VP Advantage, How Running Mates Influence Home State Voting in Presidential Elections. Co-authors today, Cobb Copco and Christopher Devine. Gentlemen, again, thank you very much for being with us today. Coming up on tomorrow's program, a Twitter town hall meeting on Bill Cosby.